0: we're going to be looking at the last moments of the life of Stephen. We're also going to be looking at the impact that his death has had upon the church at that time and even the impact it has had up until today. Now, I suspect, at least I like to think, that most people, at least us boys and men, all have had dreams of accomplishing great things in life and of leaving a Uh, a great legacy of having impact on other people's lives when we leave this earth in physical death. At least I know I did. Even starting at a young age, I thought, I want to do something that is important and lasting, even before I became a Christian. And I suspect that Stephen may have had similar dreams as a young man. But the sermon he gave in his defense against the Sanhedrin has spoken literally to millions, maybe billions, over the last 2,000 years. And his death was a catalyst for the spread of the gospel through the Christian church from Jerusalem and to the rest of the world. Remember these words that we we looked at last week, the words of Stephen as he concluded his sermon, his defense against the Sanhedrin. He said, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. A stinging indictment from Stephen. Now hearing these words again, should prepare us for what happened to Stephen next. (laughs) And it'll help us understand why it happened. Stephen had proved that he honored God, he honored Moses, he honored the law, he honored the Jewish temple. And these final words of his put the members of the Sanhedrin in the same category with the ancients who had resisted God and killed his prophets in the Old Testament. Of course, Stephen's words and putting them in that place did not go over well with the Jewish leadership. And they responded by attacking Stephen and murdering this great preacher of truth. Now, Stephen's story can teach us a great many things about what it means to be committed to God and his truth, regardless of the opposition or the price that it might exact from us. So we're going to start today by looking, first of all, at verse 54 of chapter 7, Stephen's conviction. Verse 54 says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. That's the English Standard Version. The New King James is even a little more colorful. It says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. (laughs) They were ticked. (laughs) Clearly the Jewish leaders had actually been listening now to Stephen's summation for probably 30 or 40 minutes. And he eloquently reviewed the history of God's work in and through Israel up to this point. And the longer he spoke, the more uncomfortable these guys became as he made his case against them, and it got stronger and stronger. And by the time he finished, they knew without a doubt that he was talking about them. And Scripture says they were cut to the heart. They were enraged. A phrase that literally means they were cut to pieces. They were cut in two. And their pious self-righteousness was shredded by what Stephen had said to them. In John MacArthur's New Testament commentary, he writes this. He says, Stephen's words ripped apart the veneer of their false spirituality and exposed them for the blasphemous hypocrites they were. Hmm. Now, These men were supposed to be the most spiritual and the most mature in Israel. And they responded with venom, gnashing their teeth in raw anger at Stephen here. So next we see Stephen's confidence, confidence that was an outgrowth of his conviction. Verse 55. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So while while his accusers were full of anger and fury, Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus promised confidence through the Holy Spirit to his disciples while they were being trained. Back in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, he told them this. He said, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Well that's a promise for all who are persecuted for their faith. The Spirit is there to give us wisdom and confidence to anyone who stands for God before his detractors. First Peter 4.14, Peter told us this. He said, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And it must have been an incredible sight for Stephen as he looked heavenward and saw Jesus standing there in preparation for his homecoming. So we can see Stephen's courage, verses 56 to 59. His courage is evident in his his final testimony, in his final triumph over those who were about to put him to death. Verse 56 gives us his, his final testimony. And he said, behold... I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, just to note, these are not his final words, just his last words to the council. The high priest who presided over Stephen's arraignment before the Sanhedrin was probably Caiaphas, the same high priest who presided over Jesus' trial. When Caiaphas demanded of Jesus, he said, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus responded to him, it is as you say. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas then tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. And then Jesus was taken out, tried, and put to death. The same scenario that played out here in Stephen's case before Caiaphas. When Stephen said he saw Jesus at God's right hand, he was declaring Jesus to be co-equal with God, which was ultimately blasphemous to the Sanhedrin. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus told Caiaphas that they would one day see him at the right hand of God. And Stephen has just told him that he sees Jesus in that very place. Mark chapter 6 Hebrews chapter 1, chapter 10, chapter 12, all locate Jesus seated at the right hand of God following his redemptive work and his ascension. But interestingly here, Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Some people ask why. And there are a couple of possibilities here. Some have suggested that Jesus was standing to welcome Stephen into heaven. And that would have been an incredible reassurance, I think, to Stephen, if, uh, especially in light of what he was currently going through. Thought number two, though, comes from James Boyce's commentary, referring to Jesus' promise in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Boyce suggests here that Jesus is standing in order to confess Stephen to the Father, to advocate to advocate for Stephen. That if we confess Jesus on earth, he will confess us before the Father. And if we don't confess him on earth, Matthew 10.33 tells us, Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's serious. We need to confess Jesus before men. We also see Stephen's courage in his final trial here in verses 57 and 58. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now like Jesus' trial, Stephen's trial here, it really wasn't much of a trial. In both, the accusers knew what the outcome of the trial would be before it ever began. Both trials were just a formality to a foregone, foregone conclusion. But first here, they stopped him in what he was saying. Verse 57 tells us that they heard him say he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And it was just too much for them to take. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Now, this is kind of a strange scene here. And it's interesting that the word ran in verse 57 is the same word that describes that herd of swine, the demon-possessed pigs that ran off the cliff into the sea in Galilee back in Matthew chapter 8. Verse 32. Then in verse 58, it tells us, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. These crazed leaders didn't rush at Stephen to drive him away from them. They had murderous intent in their hearts and on their minds. See, Mosaic law prescribes stoning as the method of execution of one found guilty of idolatry in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 to 7. It says there, If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, Then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness." The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And we have a problem with the electric chair. <laughs> the members of the Sanhedrin believed that Stephen blasphemed God by worshipping another different god, Jesus. Obviously, they didn't understand, nor did they accept that Jesus was the Jehovah, that he was the Messiah, the promised one. So although they were misguided, they were acting in accordance with Old Testament law in their minds. Blasphemers were to be taken outside the walls of the city for stoning. Their hands and their feet would be bound, and then they would stand the prisoner on a pedestal about six feet high above a stone floor, and they'd push him forward off the pedestal. Now, if that didn't kill him, they would turn him over on his back and drop a large stone on his chest. And if that was not enough to induce death, then the whole crowd would begin throwing stones at him until he was dead. Now, clearly... (laughs) In Stephen's cage, case, much of this prescribed process was completely ignored. and The leaders were so enraged that they apparently went straight to the stoning when they got outside the city. And where does it tell us that they laid their robes so they could wind up and throw the stones? At the feet of Saul, a young man from Tarsus, a zealous Pharisee, that would soon lead a great persecution of the church. And even as the stones were hurled and broke down his body, Stephen prayed. Prayed in front of the man who would later become the Apostle Paul. A man who then loved Christ and was the great missionary for the gospel. A willing and supportive witness to this horrible An unjust event. But Saul was not a Christian. And therefore he lacked spiritual discernment. Just as the rest of the council did. And Stephen's courage and his conviction in the face of death stuck with Paul for the rest of his life. He still played that scene back and remembered it clearly. And then in Stephen's courage we see his final triumph. Even as the stones broke his body down, he prayed in front of Saul and his attackers, and he prayed this. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, affirming the deity of Christ. And the word Lord is found something like 270 times in Paul's letters. Referring to Jesus Christ. Kind of an eternal echo of the first time he heard it, which was from Stephen here. Paul was there, the apostle. He saw Stephen's face, as we recall from last week or the week before, which was like an angel. And he heard that powerful sermon that we studied last week with Stephen's deep knowledge of the Old Testament And he saw Stephen stoned to death and heard him call upon his Lord Jesus. And he heard him pray for the forgiveness of those who were killing him. So in a very brief time, Paul got a very thorough lesson in what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. And then we come to Stephen's crowning, if you will. Now, since my name is also Stephen, I took it upon myself some time back. I was interested in knowing what my name meant. I was adopted. I didn't even know where it came from. But I wanted to know what it meant. And I found that there are a number of words for it, but they all refer to a crown or a laurel or a reward of some sort. In general, it means crowned one, and it's used often in the context of Winning or concluding a race or a competition. Stephen followed Christ in his testimony. He followed Christ in his trial. And then here in his final triumph, he even prayed the same final prayer that Jesus did as he died. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, I would think that perhaps Paul was still even thinking of Stephen years later when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, he said, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Fallen asleep is a a common term used for death in the New Testament. It suggests a, a peaceful transition from one state to the next, from this side of glory to the next, It also refers to the position of the body as the spirit of the person departs to be with the Lord. The person is still very much alive. He's just left one realm, the physical realm, and has gone to another, the spiritual realm. And the body sleeps until that final resurrection when it will be raised in glory. So we've seen Stephen's conviction. We've seen his confidence, his courage And now his coronation. All that's left then to us today would be to acknowledge his contribution to the church through the life of the Apostle Paul. That's our so what for today. What does it really mean to us? To find out we need to go to the next chapter. Chapter 8 verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Paul's consenting to Stephen's death was the first mention of Saul in the Bible and it was a rather infamous reference at that. But we know that it made an indelible impression upon Paul from his references to it Responding to a vision that he had of Christ after his conversion, which we'll talk about very soon. Look with me at Acts chapter 22. By now, Paul becomes one of the key figures in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 22, verse 20. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Paul never forgot. His contribution to Stephen's death. Stephen's death gave rise to a great persecution, which Paul led, by the way. It resulted in evangelism outside of Jerusalem. And so far, as you recall, everything up in the book of Acts so far has taken place in or around Jerusalem the ascension of the Lord, the Pentecost, the growth of the church, and now Stephen's death, and now the persecution of the church all took place in or around Jerusalem but the last thing Jesus told his disciples when he ascended was in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 if you remember but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth and yet So far, the church has been pretty much centered and confined to Jerusalem. Well, maybe if Stephen's sermon and and death hadn't started the persecution that it did, humanly speaking, the gospel may have never left Jerusalem. Or maybe if they had moved out of Jerusalem in obedience to Jesus' command when he gave it, things would have been different. Stephen wouldn't have had to die then. Of course, that's all speculation. What did happen was that in order to get the church to obey his command, God had to allow a great persecution of the church. And God has used persecution of the church and displacement of people to accomplish his purpose of spreading the gospel to the world throughout human history. Thousands of Koreans fled to Russia in the 1930s to escape the Japanese invasion there. Later, Joseph Stalin, of all people, relocated some of those Koreans into a predominantly Muslim area. A couple of generations later, Korean Christians began winning Muslims to Christ in the Central Asia region of the Soviet Union. And then in 1990, that area's first open-air Christian meeting saw a young Korean from America preach to a crowd in the capital of Kazakhstan. Funny how that persecution thing works. Ultimately, we can do God's will his way or not. Either way, God will do his will. He will accomplish his will. Now, I pray that the story of Stephen would, would help motivate us and give us the desire to, to take up the great commission of Christ that we've been given Go into our neighborhood with the gospel. Go into our community out here with the gospel. Into our Judea, our Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, Eric and his family we saw in our mission spotlight today are kind of on the opposite side of the world from us, right in the dead center of the 1040 window that we've heard so much about in missions. Some dear friends of ours have just come back from Abu Dhabi, where they pastored an international church there. The gospel is in the Arab world. And it is going out. Those who are carrying it have to be careful how they, how they do it and to whom they say it. But they're out there spreading the gospel. While a lot of people may have been in the past, I wouldn't expect any of us in this room today to ever be asked to give our lives for Christ, as Stephen did. But God wants our lives. He wants us to give him our lives, to live for him, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be his ambassadors to this lost world that we're a part of. Stephen left a lasting legacy in his death. And I pray that we as individuals and as a, as a community as First Baptist Church of Cambria will use the time that we have to leave lasting legacy of spreading the gospel <coughs> that there will be people in Cambria Cambria might be known as a Christian community <laughs> because we here are faithful in taking the gospel with us as we go by speaking the truth that gives life in the gospel of Jesus. Would you pray with me?